0: Awesome! I thought about mounting the stage with a superhero drop, you know? You know how they come down from the sky? Okay, maybe not. I am a Spider-Man fan. I haven't seen that movie yet, but I plan to very shortly. Uh, I've been a Spider-Man fan all my life. Superheroes, really. I think every little boy goes through a superhero phase, right? I mean, when I was like 8 or 10, I wanted to be Batman and really didn't understand why I couldn't. I wanted to grow up and marry Wonder Woman. Because she was hot. (laughs) And the two of us would fight crime and live happily ever after. Now, I don't know if you noticed this because you know a lot happens in a Spider Man movie. There's a lot going on. Uh, But Spider Man has a very interesting reaction with Max, an interaction actually. And Max, I think most of us would agree, he's played by Jamie Foxx, who does an awesome job in that part or that role in the movie. But Max suffers from what we might call low self-esteem. Did you pick up on that? Uh, just in case you didn't pick up on it, and just because I want to see parts of it again, roll it. Excuse me. You want to run on the sidewalk, like, please. I got blueprints here. No help? A little help, please? You Philip, a problem with your gun? Let me help you out with that. Let's go. Oh, it's bad. I'm gonna be right back. <laughs> Heads up, right? Okay, okay, there you go. You okay? You alright? Just Spider Man. Awesome gets it away, huh? But this is pretty important, Max. how do you know my name? It's written on your badge. I'm a nobody. Hey, you're not a nobody. You're somebody. Like that. All right. Listen to me. I need you. You're my eyes and ears out here. All right? All right. Stay out there. Who am I? I'm nobody. How do you know my name? I'm not important. Yes, you are important. You're my eyes and ears. Anyone can recognize by witnessing that simple clip that Max probably struggles in the area of self esteem or self worth. Over the past five decades, basically during my lifetime, our understanding and the psychology surrounding self image and self worth and self esteem has completely turned. The pendulum has swung. We've, we've spun 180 degrees. One thing we know for sure, however, is how valuable a positive self image can be for a person and how crippling a negative self image can be. You see, how you see yourself has everything to do with the decisions you make. And the path that you are likely to take. But now I've got to be honest with you because I've studied this long enough to recognize some have lost their minds regarding the area of self-esteem and what they're willing to teach on it. As I said, during my adult lifetime, the pendulum has completely swung to the other side. The things we used to teach are no longer considered viable in the subject or regarding the subject of self esteem. Now, I don't know why, I don't know why some take their teaching on self esteem and they just go out there somewhere. I mean, they just run wild. They blame everything, perhaps, on their upbringing and their self-esteem, perhaps in hopes of removing all personal responsibility. In other words, if I feel bad about myself, then it's someone else's fault that I feel bad about myself. Or if a poor self-esteem keeps me from doing anything with my life, then that too is someone else's fault, because certainly I am not responsible because I have low self-esteem. I came across an article written by a group of psychologists from Harvard. And in this article, they propose four self-esteem myths. Now, what's interesting about these four is that they used to be true. We used to teach this in our elementary schools. Today, we do not because now we've studied it long enough that we know better. Here's self-esteem myth number one. Healthy self-esteem is the product of loving self. Now, that sounds right, doesn't it? Especially if you're my age. That's what you were taught in elementary school. You have to love yourself, feel good about yourself in order to have a positive self-esteem. We've now learned that is completely and totally false. Because healthy self-image or healthy self-esteem is not about loving yourself. When I was a child in elementary school, and there was a bully... We assumed that no one loved that bully. That's why they were a bully. A bully, when I was a child in elementary school, probably didn't love himself. Here's what we know today. They actually love themselves too much. They're bullies because they have such high esteem of self. Here's myth number two. Working on you will increase your self-esteem. False. The key to healthy self-esteem is not working on you, not turning inward, but interacting with other people. Learning to work with other people, not self-isolation, is the key. Here's myth number three. Doing things you're good at will increase your self-esteem. Now that makes sense to me, frankly, on the surface, but think about it. Doing things you're good at will increase your self-esteem. Here's the quote from the article. You cannot grow And see yourself in a positive light if you are not being challenged with new experiences. In other words, if there are a handful of things that I do and I do them well, when I focus on them to somehow make me feel good about what I can accomplish, that's not helping me. Here's myth number four. Shiny new things will build self-esteem. Shiny new things, including new romantic relationships, will build healthy self-esteem. Let me ask you something, church. When you want to buy yourself something new or you want to get out of one relationship and get into a new one, build a new romantic relationship just to feel good about yourself, I would challenge you to pause for a moment and consider that motivation. Sit with those feelings for just a little while because chances are you're running from the one person that you cannot escape, and that's you. The one person that you don't like, and that's you. Look. The internet is bulging with information. It is buzzing with advice and instruction for building healthy self-esteem. Tony Robbins is a zillionaire because people naturally want to feel good about themselves. But here's the ironic part. Typically, we do not naturally feel good about ourselves. It doesn't at least come naturally. Do you remember uh, in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16? God sent the first prophet, his name was Samuel, to the household of Jesse and told him to choose the next king of Israel. So Samuel goes to the household of Jesse and Jesse lines up all of his sons from oldest to youngest. Well, the youngest wasn't there because the youngest was considered insignificant. The youngest was out tending the father's sheep. His name was David. Little known to Samuel at the outset, David would be the next king of Israel, but Samuel was focused on the physical specimens before him. In 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, here's what God told Samuel. Do not consider their appearance or their height. That's the first thing we look at. Oh, he's tall. Oh, he's muscular. The first judgment we make on people typically is their physical appearance. God says, don't do that for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People look at other people. We've been taught to look inside ourselves. Here's what I want to do today. Today, I want to challenge you to look here. Who does God say you are? And what difference can that make? What does this inspired book say about me? Here's the big statement. I put it in the program. You, my friend, are not the product of the experiences that you've lived through in your lifetime. You are not the product. You are not simply a compilation of all the stuff that's happened to you. You are not the product of the experiences that you've lived throughout your lifetime. Let me tell you what that looks like. That means that a demanding mother, an absentee father plus no prom date for the prom, plus no education formally or otherwise, no college degree. That does not necessarily equal insignificance or failure. Every person in this building today, including me, every person in this building has endured roadblocks and landmines throughout the course of their lives. No one's upbringing was important, was Perfect. That's because we live in a fallen universe where bad things happen regularly and bad experiences will touch us all. I've I've often wondered if we had a big hat in the back. And when you came into church on Sunday, I had you write down your problems. Just write them down on a card. And when you leave, you're going to put them in that hat. And next week, when you arrive, you're going to draw from the hat. In other words, you're going to take someone else's problem and live with it for a week. I wonder how many of us, after just a few days, would be ready to exchange back. The point is, every person in this auditorium has endured difficulty. We've all suffered through unfairness. Not one of us has enjoyed a perfect upbringing. You are not the product of the experiences that you've lived throughout your lifetime. Instead, do you know what this says? This book says that you are the product of the conclusions you've drawn regarding those experiences. And there's a big difference between the two. The Bible teaches that I'm not simply the compilation of all the bad stuff that's happened to me. That's not who I am. Instead, I am the product of all of the conclusions I've drawn, the truth I've made, so to speak, Regarding those experiences, enter regular church attendance. Enter exposure to one another and exposure to the Word of God. You see, if you're sitting at home today, and you have been for quite some time, because frankly, COVID-19 was the perfect excuse not to go to church, but all of that has changed. It's time to come back to church. If you're sitting at home today, you've gotten comfortable in your pajamas with your cup of coffee watching church. Now, I get that, but let me just ask you a question. Why stop there? If that's all your worship experience, why not leave this church and go find the absolute best church online you can find? Find the best, most powerful music you can find. Find the best, most educated speaker you can find. If that's all church is to you, but you see you know it deep down inside, that's not all church is. When you make the sacrifice and the commitment to bring your family on Sunday, and by the way, church, attendance across America in all churches is down thanks to COVID-19, but COVID-19 has almost run its course. Come on. It's not keeping us out of movie theaters any longer. It's not keeping us out of restaurants any longer. It's not keeping us out of theme parks any longer. We're not avoiding big cities. We're certainly not locked down in our apartment. The fact is we've gotten comfortable. Our worship has become convenient. Let me tell you what you're missing. You're missing the sacrifice you make to bring your family to worship. The overt action of worship, which reflects my personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And my personal commitment to Jesus Christ is the foundation upon which I am building my life. No, I am not simply the result of my past experiences, but I am the product of the conclusions I've drawn regarding each one of them. When we gathered together for the first time regarding this subject in week one, we talked about surrender. Surrender. The only kind of life that can deliver a happy new year in 2022 is the surrendered life because the surrendered life is the blessed life. And you would think, in light of God's attributes, in light of God's character, his virtues, that surrender would be a natural response for us, but it's not. It's not. Last time we talked about our time in the coming new year. My time should be understood in the context of God, not me, because when I understand God's purposes, I will live with the end in mind. And church, listen, that's not a morbid thought. You say, live with the end in mind. That sounds terribly morbid. That's not morbid. That's practical. That's what we do when we want to maximize our time. We live with the end in mind. We think about how much time we have, and that helps us make the most of our time. Many are gonna miss the intangible blessing that comes from that new perspective because they're still gonna to continue to try and answer those same old three questions that I've brought to your attention every week over the past few. Psychologists tell us there are three questions that subconsciously we all grow up trying to answer. These three questions play a huge role in our New Year's resolutions. The questions are how do I look? How do I do? And how important am I? Some of you made New Year's resolutions based upon one of those or three of those three questions. In 2022, I'm going to drop some weight. I want to exercise. I want to eat right. I want to feel better about myself because if I look better, I'll feel better. If I feel better, I'll be happy. How do I do? That is a performance evaluation and appreciation question. We are searching for people to pat us on the back. Men especially will literally search for someone to cheer for them. And then the question that I want to examine today, how important am I? I want to answer all three of those questions once and for all from God's perspective. What does the Bible say about those three questions? How do I look? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm not interested in how you think I look. I want to know how God thinks I look. How do I do? Thanks, but no thanks. I appreciate the kind words, but I'm not interested in how you think I do. I want to know how God thinks I'm doing. And how important am I? Here's question number one. How do I look? How do I look to God? How do I look to God? Do you know what this book teaches? That when God sees me, the first thing he sees is my sin. That's what this says. How do I look? Well, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul wrote, As it is written, and whenever your New Testament says as it is written, it's talking about something that's written in the Old Testament. Just thought I'd clear that up. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Paul said succinctly, There's no one righteous. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. Now, it's common for people to excuse their faults with the uh, pervasive attitude. Well, hey, wait a minute now. Nobody's perfect. Granted, I'll give you that. I've said it. You've probably said it. Hey, nobody's perfect. True enough. People can only be expected to be human. That means we're going to be fallible. But here's the kicker. Follow me. Unfortunately, few people take that reality seriously enough, however, What does it mean not to be perfect? Hey, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. You're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Okay, fine. I get that. I get that when it's horizontal. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But what does it mean this way, vertically? What does, hey, nobody's perfect mean to God? What's the difference between I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, and wait a minute, I'm standing before God. I'm not perfect. Well, then we take a different stance. Then we try and convince ourselves, well, okay, nobody's perfect, but surely I'm good enough. Again, you're good enough to me, maybe I'm good enough to you, but that's not the question. The question is, am I good enough to God? The Bible says, no, because there's no one righteous. We're all sinners and we have fallen short of God's mark. In verse 9 of Romans chapter 3, Paul says it this way We're all, quote, under sin. Then he cites a number of Old Testament passages to prove his point. You see, you don't have to read very long or very far before this book reminds you you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. In fact, the Bible uses multiple words to convey the same idea. Here they are. I'll put them on the screen. The Bible uses the word sin. Do you know what sin means? It means missing the mark. You see, sin is not a religious word. A lot of people think sin is some biblical, ancient religious word. It's not. It's an archery term, believe it or not. Thousands and thousands of years ago, this was the word used to describe how far the archer missed the mark. When the archer draws back the bow and releases the arrow, if it misses the target, if it misses the bullseye, the distance of the miss was known as the, quote, sin of the arrow. Arrow. Then the Bible uses the word transgression. You know what transgression means? It means crossing a line. A lot of our men are getting that last hunt in for this season. We had a lot of men gone from the first service. I can look around and see a lot of men gone from this service. If you're out in the woods with a rifle in your hand and you come across a fence and there's a sign that says, no trespassing, we all know exactly what that means, right? Don't cross that line. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, I've crossed the line. God drew a line and I crossed it. In fact, Paul says almost humorously in Romans chapter 7, Maybe if God hadn't told me not to cross the line, I wouldn't have wanted to cross the line so badly. I don't necessarily want to speed until I see a sign that says I can only go 70. Crossing the line means transgressing, in this case, against God. I'm a sinner. But here's the big one. Here's the big one. Iniquity. Iniquity means it's inside me. I can't blame you for missing the mark. I can't blame you for my transgression because it's inside me. If we're all honest, in a moment of pure transparency before God, wouldn't we all admit, man, there's some darkness in me. There's something that's wired exactly backwards inside of me. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that people are evil through and through. They're incapable of doing anything worthwhile or good. That's not the case. You and I are capable of incredible acts of kindness, of sacrifice, of unselfishness, of compassion, of courage, of justice. But in light of God's holy, morally perfect character, which is the ultimate standard against which my goodness will be measured, man, I am far from perfect. I'm not even close. And the evidence to that truth is my sin, my transgressions, and my... Iniquity. You see, my good behavior, if I'm honest with you, my good behavior is the exception, it's not the rule. How do I look? I'm a sinner. When God sees me, that's what He sees. Here's question two How do I do? How do I do? How am I doing then? If I started out as a sinner, well, how am I doing? I'm incapable of righteousness. That means I'm incapable of reaching the goal. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching his first public sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, here's what he says. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which, by the way, church, were the most righteous people anybody knew. These were religious supermen. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying in his first public sermon, he wants to make one thing perfectly clear that even the most moral people in the community aren't righteous. Now you and I, we know very little about Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law, but we do know about newborn babies, don't we? My nephew and his wife, Mary, they had a, a baby a little over a week ago. And one of the words that I've heard used of that child more than a few times is the word innocent. You ever hold a baby and think, oh, how innocent, how precious. Here's what Jesus could have said. Unless you are as innocent as that little baby boy or that little baby girl, you don't stand a chance of ever seeing heaven. You see, by the time Jesus finishes, he wants his audience to understand if those religious people aren't righteous, I'm not righteous either. That's why he goes on. He gets even further into it. He gives us multiple examples from the Old Testament. He says things like, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. And you probably think to yourself, well, I've never committed murder, so I must be pretty righteous. He says, but I tell you, if you've ever harbored bitterness, anger, and hatred in your heart towards someone, you're just as unrighteous. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And you probably thought to yourself, well, I've been faithful to my wife. I've never committed adultery. I'm feeling pretty good about that. I must be righteous. But I tell you, he said, if you've ever looked after a woman who's not your wife with lust in your heart, you're just as unrighteous. He says, you're worried about getting divorced the, quote, right way. I'm telling you, anybody who gets divorced and marries somebody else is just as unrighteous. You see, the only way the Sermon on the Mount can be understood is if when you read it, you understand Jesus is trying to convince people that they're not nearly as righteous as they think they are, for none are righteous. When Jesus finished his whole sermon, the people were supposed to look around and say, Well, good grief, based upon what he just said, I guess no one's righteous except God. To which Jesus would respond, Ding, 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 winner, onto the bonus round. You finally got it. How do I look? I'm a sinner how do I do? I'm incapable of hitting the mark. That's why the, the Bible uses a word that we typically don't like to describe me. The word is ungodly. Ungodly. The Bible says on more than one occasion, especially in the book of Romans, that I, without Christ, I am ungodly. And usually when we hear that word, you know what we think? We think of the most vile, heinous, demented, twisted, dark, perverted thing we could ever imagine. Oh my goodness, that is ungodly. But that's not what it means. Ungodly simply means not God. Now that's something we can get behind, right? Not God. Well, I'm not God. You God? No? Okay, good. Then we're ungodly. Here, follow me. I'm not God. I'm not even like God. I'm unlike God or ungodlike. I'm ungodly. That's where the word comes from. I'm not God. In fact, I'm not like God. I'm unlike God. I'm ungodlike. I'm ungodly. You see, by your standard and mine, you're a fine person. Some of the finest people I know go to this church. I mean, good, right, moral, upstanding, men of integrity, women of integrity, solid families. Man, we've got some outstanding moms and dads in this church. But that's my standard. By God's standard, I'm incapable of being righteous. Now, with the little bit of time I have remaining... Let's get to this last question because this is the one I want to answer. Question number three. How important am I? How important am I? You are so important according to this book that Jesus demonstrated his love for you by giving himself up for you. It comes from Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 8. Follow me. Paul wrote, you see, just at the right time when we were still powerless. How were we powerless? Because we couldn't hit the mark. We were sinners. We kept crossing the line. We transgressed. There was something wrong on the inside. Iniquity. While we were still powerless, Christ died for the, here comes the term, ungodly. Very rarely might anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Watch verse 8. But God demonstrates. He doesn't just talk about it. It's not some existential idea floating around in religious doctrine. No. God put his money where his mouth was. He demonstrated his own love for us in this. He would do something for you that you could not ignore. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, let me lay some Greek terminology on you. Present active tense. Present active tense. That means it's happening now and it's ongoing. While we were still sinners, while I was in the very act of sinning, he caught me red-handed. And that's when he died for me. How important am I? I am so significant that the creator of the universe did for me what I could never have accomplished on my own. Not on my best day when I felt like I kind of deserved it, but on my worst day. That's when he did it. He carried away all of the sin in my life. He carried away all the garbage in my life. You know that's what forgive means? Forgiveness means to carry away. If I forgive you, I carry away the offense. Every Wednesday in our neighborhood, the trash truck comes around, carries away all my garbage, and I'm so glad that happens. I'm so glad. Can you imagine if there was no way to get rid of our trash? Can you imagine if they passed some law or the environmentalist crazies just, you know, went bonkers and said, oh, you got to do something. You got to take care of your own trash on your own property right now. I don't know what I'd do. You start piling it up back by the fence by your neighbor's yard. Do you want to smell it? It's disgusting. You parents who are changing diapers multiple times a day step off your back porch and it's like, whoa. You'd pile it up over by the shrubbery. Maybe you got a little patch of wood. Before long, it'd look like this. It'd just be a big pile of refuse. It'd be nasty. It'd be disgusting. It'd be disturbing. It'd be humiliating. You wouldn't want everybody in your neighborhood to see your trash, would you? The Bible teaches in Psalm 32, David used these words, he's carried away my sin. He's carried away my sin. The psalmist also says, as far as the east is from the west, so far removed has God carried away my transgressions. In Psalm 32, David goes on to say, he's covered my sin." He's carried away my sin and now he's, he's covered it. I've only been in one big snow in my life and that was when I spent a month with my Uncle Tom up north on his farm and overnight we got a foot of snow. You know what a farm looks like when it's been covered with a foot of snow? It's beautiful. Everything is covered. Everything is Even. Smooth and flowing. There are no bare patches of ground. There are no thorny bushes or thistles. Everything is beautiful, untouched, and clean. That's what God did for you. Because that's how significant you are. Before I quit, i got to tell you one last story. Several years ago, an illustration made its way across the United States. Preachers, and I used it once at a a youth conference, speaking to about a thousand young people. It was especially popular among youth ministers because it was aimed at teaching young people to guard their purity, to protect their body, not to give it away to everyone. The illustration went something like this. The speaker would we talk about personal purity, how our bodies ultimately belong to God. And in doing so, he'd hold up a long stem rose, and it was beautiful, just like you could imagine. And he would smell it, and he'd hold it up, and he'd talk about its beauty. And in the course of preaching, he'd toss the rose into the crowd, and he'd say, pass it around, smell it, examine it, caress it, hold it, touch it, it's beautiful, As he continued to preach, eventually he'd ask for the rose to be returned and someone would bring it on stage. But now it had been handled by thousands of hands. Now it had been touched by everyone in the auditorium. It was missing petals. The leaves were droopy. The stem had been creased and and almost broken. And he would end the sermon with a question by holding up the rose and saying, now who wants the rose? And the young people were supposed to make the connection. The young people were supposed to know that's my body and I got to protect it. I can't give it away or it's going to hurt me in the end. But here's how I want to use the illustration today. This one body has known darkness, it's known failure, it's known defeat, it's known rejection, it's known the darkness that is existence in this fallen universe. Who wants that rose? Jesus wants that rose. Don't ever forget it. Jesus wants that rose. You see, your happy new year, my self-esteem, really has not much to do with how do I look because the Bible says I'm a sinner. How do I do? I'm incapable of righteousness. But the new year has everything to do with the life-altering love of Jesus Christ as demonstrated on the cross and that's what makes me significant and you significant let's pray father thank you for the clarity of your word we can't understand or put all those pieces together don't know why we try and earn something we could never earn on our own but Father, ultimately, what we do to try and honor you, we do simply for that reason, to honor you in response to the grand gesture that you've made on our behalf, demonstrating our significance and your love for us. May we walk out of here this day knowing, knowing that we've got the rest of our lives to revel in that love, to celebrate that grace and to be grateful for that significance. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.